0: And as the elders of our time choose to remain blind, let us rejoice and let us sing and dance and ring in the new. Hail Atlantis! Hello everyone and welcome to the Stephen King cast! One man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication, and this week guys I'm reviewing the 1999 novella collection Hearts in Atlantis. Now as you know, at least once a decade, King has published a collection of novellas, a tradition that began with 1983's Different Seasons, a collection that included The Body, Apt Pupil, and Rita Hayworth in The Shawshank Redemption. In 1990, King released an examination on the malleable nature of time with Four Past Midnight, and now, published right before we entered a new millennia, King released a series of stories looking at the baby boomer generation. Unlike each of the previous novella collections, Hearts in Atlantis is a series of interconnected vignettes linked together through characters who bump up against each other. Each story examines a different viewpoint of their lives, with the first and the last stories focusing on Bobby Garfield, first as a child and later as an adult. Because these stories are so interconnected, this review is going to look different from the reviews of the previous novella collections. In different seasons and four past midnight, I devoted an episode for each of the stories within But because the novellas included here are so woven in and out of each other, I just think it makes more sense to keep this together as a singular piece. Now, before I get into the uh, story-by-story reviews, I mean, let's just kind of look at this as a whole for a second. To make a long story short, Hearts in Atlantis allows King to reflect upon his generation, the Baby Boomer generation specifically the failure of the baby boomer generation to live up to the potential of their idealistic young selves. And I think that the hardcover edition says it all. On the cover, we see a peace sign with a poster of a missing cat with the word lost stamped on it. Visually speaking, King is going to be writing about a lost generation. Now, this was an unexpected treat when it first came out. I honestly did not think That we'd get the expansion of the Dark Tower mythology, as we do with the introductory novella Low Men in Yellow Coats, a story which will be made into an Anthony Hopkins starring adaptation, Hearts in Atlantis. Now, as with any of the Dark Tower-related novels, I will be publishing a bonus episode placing the Dark Tower aspects of the story into the larger context of King's works. And while we're on the subject, stick around for my review of uh, the Hearts in Atlantis, uh, the movie. All right, guys. So before I get any further into Hearts in Atlantis, the novella collection, I'm going to read a listener email. So, as you know, I, I love uh, getting uh, listener emails from you guys, so if you listen to the Stephen King cast, if you want to share your thoughts on any of my viewpoints on any of the works that have been reviewed so far, any works that, you know, have come out, uh, yeah, or I guess reviews that I haven't gotten around to yet, um, just general Stephen King thoughts, your relationship with Stephen King... Uh, just feel free to, to write in and I will, you know, I'll, I'll share your thoughts to, to our audience. So we have an email from Christian who writes Hi, I just wanted to drop a line here and say how much I appreciate your podcast. You've asked about your listener's own SK background. So here's mine, which is, will, this will lead into how thankful I am that I found your podcast. I don't have many memories from my elementary school age days, but one I do have is sneaking into my parents' bedroom one night and noting that my dad had quite a hefty paperback on his bedside table. One with a cover that for some reason struck me as mysterious despite its simplicity. My parents' room was always off limits to us kids and thus had a mysterious ambiance to it anyway. It read, Four Past Midnight, and featured an easily remembered name, Stephen King. I was 10 years old, and I knew I had to find out more about the author and this book. I remember thinking that this book must have treasures galore, a book that size. Later that week, I spent a day at my grandparents' house who lived behind a library. When I stayed with them, the routine always included a library visit just prior to dinner. I was eager to go for sure this time as I was armed with a particular name to investigate. I saw three books on the shelf displaying this author's name, Cycle of the Werewolf, The Drawing of the Three, and Christine. I checked out all three under my grandparents' account, walked home with them, and sped through dinner because I'd peeked at Cycle of the Werewolf and wanted more. Anyway, that was my beginning. Come that fall, my dad was aware of my interest and let me know he'd taped a miniseries adapted from one of King's works, a miniseries called It. As a huge Harry Anderson fan, Night Court was my favorite show. And being a new fan of King, being given a copy of this miniseries was like getting that new shiny bike on Christmas morning. I was hooked. From that moment on, for the next ten years, I read, watched, (laughs) ate, slept everything King. Calendars were marked with upcoming books as soon as release dates were announced. And like you, I kept coming back to It, both the novel and the miniseries, over and over. While I was perfectly aware of the flaws and shortcomings and cheese of the miniseries for IT, The Stand, and The Langoliers, it was all we had, and like the kid without many toys, I learned to love the ones I had, and today I still have a fondness for the IT miniseries. Fast forward 25 years to today. I've read everything the man has written. I, like you, also have read everything of Joe Hill. However, by and large, for me outside of these two men, there's a large gap for me in the horror novel world. It seems hard to find another author uh, to find even coming close to approaching King. Of course, I read Boy's Life and Swan Song by McCammon. I dabbled in some John Saul. Never could get past Kuntz's childish dialogue. Recently, I found Ronald Malfi's work, which has been a blessing, but there's not much else there, it seems. Writers like Ian Robb Wright and Brian Smith and Brian Keane are certainly popular, but they seem to write horror to be horrific, rather than exploring the characters' natures natures, and the horror they should be bringing to the situation, a la Needful Things in the Mist, most notably. Does that make sense? It seems like they're writing the Saw movie franchise, not Rosemary's Baby or Psycho. So I'm curious if you've come across any other authors that have helped fill the King fix between his releases. I know you've mentioned the Pine Deep trilogy. I've read Ghost Road Blues twice, but can't remember much of it. I suppose I must give it another go now that you've endorsed it as an underrated classic. Well, that brings me to your podcast. Not finding other horror authors that gave me the King fix, for lack of a better phrase, has led to a lot of frustration this year. But since I discovered your podcast, your critical analysis of King's work has me wanting to revisit so many of the books I haven't read in years and years. Many since I was an early teenager. I feel like I have a new breath again, as strange as that may sound. Please continue the good work. I recently finished Joe Hill's 20th Century Ghosts for the first time. Wow, pop art and voluntary committal will always stick with me and I'm halfway through the drawing of the three for the first time in 25 years. I'm telling everyone I know about your podcast. I've also left a five-star review. I appreciate your hard work and your love for literature, especially SK. I've learned a lot and will continue to learn more and more, I'm sure. All the best, Christian. Christian, thanks. Thanks, man. Thank you for writing in. I really, really appreciate it. I love your story of discovering King. I think that it's important. And in in terms of what you said about... Um, Brian Keene. I man, I mean, you just you just hit the hit the nail on the head. They are writing horror to be horrific rather than exploring the characters' natures and the horror they should be bringing to the situation. Uh, it seems like they're writing the Saw movie franchise, not Rosemary's Baby or Psycho. That's a great what great great way of putting it. Um, and yes, please the the Pine Deep trilogy um, by. Jonathan Maberry uh, is a great trilogy. He also has a series of novels um, of a character by the name of Joe Ledger, I believe, who gets into... I don't know if they're supernatural. I think they're they're more sci-fi um, premise concepts. But, you know, I mean, that might be something that is worth checking out. I'm not sure. But here are some... Here are some areas that I think that you could go. If you haven't read The Descent by Jeff Long, you're really missing out. It's an incredible, high-concept story of uh, an underground race of creatures. This is not to be confused with the also incredible movie that came out around 2009, 2010. Um, it was made in Australia, I believe, or England. Um about the, the female spelunkers who go um, who go exploring the cave only to discover uh, some subterranean creatures that begin attacking them. It's a great movie. If you haven't seen the movie, please see the movie. But if you have not read the book, uh, which is completely unrelated, the movie is not based on its book whatsoever, you are missing out on a novel that is truly horrific, um, really gets to some personal frightening places, but is also... A, a very large concept, and it becomes an epic story taking place all across the world, underneath the world. Uh, there's a lot of exploration. There's a lot of rich mythology to it. There are some set pieces that are going to give you nightmares that are going to stick with you. That are s- it's 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 such an incredible novel, and I probably should go back and and reread it. And if you like it, there is a sequel called Deeper, I believe, um, by uh, Jeff Long. Uh, and I think he was starting to set the stage for a third book that he hasn't gone around to yet, and I would like to uh, see what he has in store for us. So, Jeff Long, if you're listening to this, uh, I do miss your writing, so please feel free to publish the third part of your Descent trilogy. Other novels that you might want to think about uh, if you are not reading John Connolly, John Connolly... He sometimes gets confused as a crime writer, not to be confused with Michael Connelly, the crime writer, but John Connelly's books can be found in the mystery section of your local bookstore. And if you start reading The Adventures of Charlie Parker, you will see a lot of Stephen King in his works. Uh, they are set in in deep main uh, his his writing of the, the, the main wilderness is completely on point. It's beautiful. And John Connolly is an Irish author and he brings a, a very poetic uh, sense of style to his writing and he can write some truly horrific scenes and descriptions. And there is basically what it is is that the main character, Charlie Parker is a um, former cop who uh, unfortunately suffers a truly tragic uh, situation in which his family is murdered, and he becomes a private investigator, and he continues to get into... Every, every case he winds up investigating um, starts to have more and more of a supernatural aspect to it, and as the books get further along, we realize that there's this much, much larger world behind uh behind the scenes that involve fallen angels and other creepy supernatural characters and uh not the last book the one that just came out right before it is to me is just uh, the, the the pinnacle um of of what he he's able to do here it was like a battle royale of a bunch of his supernatural characters it was great so there are there are a lot of books that he has written at this point so if you want to get into a a, uh, a novelist that you haven't touched um, You will definitely have a, a lot to read there So John Connolly will not steer you wrong And if you haven't read anything by F. Paul Wilson uh, F. Paul Wilson is a lot of fun as well uh, He has written the the, the Nightworld series of books So in the early 80s through the 90s He started uh, releasing the, these publications The first one that he wrote was The Tomb no, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, my bad. It was the keep, which was adapted into a movie that I, I haven't seen yet. I don't want to. It has, I guess, it's just it's not that good. And it takes place um, in uh, during the during World War II. The Nazis occupy this keep and unknowingly unleash a what at first appears to be a vampire that had been hidden in its walls. And but we realize that the vampire has not been hiding. It's clearly been imprisoned. So now the question becomes, who or what imprisoned it? And as the vampire is going about its um, its way, uh, killing off the the Nazis, um, we start to realize more and more that this really isn't a vampire. And then across the world, there's a mysterious stranger who awakens and realizes that this creature has been. Freed and the stranger starts making his way to the keep and the we soon realize that this thing is not a vampire that there is this ancient conflict that has been raging for much longer than our history has been in existence and that sets the backdrop for a series of novels that take place within this 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 world the second novel being the tomb which is when we are introduced to a character that he will later revisit and will later um Begin to write a series of of standalone adventures um, By the name of repairman Jack who is a really cool character who lives off the grid He doesn't have a social security number. He doesn't have any credit cards. He's he operates as a cleaner He's a repairman you hire repairman Jack He's gonna take care of a problem for you and he gets into these adventures and in the tomb um, It's all about this monster from uh, from India uh and and um these necklaces that that um give you extended life which is really really fun then we have a novel called the touch which the touch is very similar to uh uh, the dead zone in some in some ways is that when the, this doctor is granted the ability to heal people with a touch based on this possessive force that has overtaken him and it's 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 causing a, a toll on his body and his his mind um, and then there's a series I think a trilogy of novels that then follow that, that serve as a sequel to the keep in which the ancient evil Rosalom the the vampire has been reborn and it just gets crazy and all of this sets up to a novel called Nightworld, which is basically F. Paul Wilson's version of The Stand, uh, where Razalam, who is our Randall Flagg character, I mean, he's, he's very, very similar to Randall Flagg, basically manages to take over the world, and it's very, very Lovecraftian. It's very dark. There's tentacled monsters. There's beasts. It's, it's super creepy. And all of the characters that have appeared in The Keep the Tomb, the Touch, and then that, that trilogy where Rosalom is reborn that all have to come together to uh to combat this this monstrous evil that, that Rosalom has unleashed in the world. And there's oh there's some really truly horrific things that take place in that novel. Uh later on, uh F. Paul Wilson realized that he had uh, he had a, a moneymaker in, in the form of uh Repairman Jack, and then went back and started filling in the spaces in between the stories that he has written and he shifted up the timeline so it's taking place in modern time now and started a series of adventures with Repairman Jack. And it all leads to a re-release of Nightworld. So there's a lot of fun stuff there. Uh, so I, I hope that that's, that's a good starting point for you. But yeah, seriously, if you have not read The Descent, you're you're really missing out. I would start with The Descent by, by Jeff Long. So um, Christian, thank you so much for um, for writing in. And anyone else that has not done so, feel free to uh, write into StephenKingCast at yahoo.com. All right, guys. So what I'm going to do now, I'm going to get into uh, my review of Hearts in Atlantis. I'm going to start first with uh, my review of Low Men in Yellow Coats. So I will read my Wikipedia summary of Low Men in Yellow Coats. The first and longest part, Low Men in Yellow Coats, takes place in 1960 and revolves around a young boy, Bobby Garfield. He lives in Harwich, Connecticut, with his self-centered mother, Liz, a widow. He really wants a bicycle, but Liz claims they do not have the money for a bike, despite her constant purchases of new clothing. For his 11th birthday, Bobby's mother gives him a birthday card containing an adult library card. During this time, Bobby doesn't realize that his mother is being forced into having an affair with her boss, Don Bitterman. Bobby spends his time with his two best friends, John Sully Sullivan and Carol Gerber. An older gentleman by the name of Ted Brodigan moves into the apartment on the third floor, two floors above Bobby and his mother. It is obvious from the start that she doesn't like Ted, but Bobby does. Ted spends a lot of time discussing books with Bobby and gives him Lord of the Flies, which makes a huge impression on the boy. Liz claims to be worried that Ted might be sexually abusing Bobby, though in fact she feels guilty about neglecting her son. Bobby, understanding the situation but unable to articulate, Uh, solves the problem by keeping the two apart. Ted speaks to Bobby as one would speak to another adult, which makes a great impression on the boy. Ted offers Bobby a small amount of money to read him the paper daily, claiming his eyes are not what they used to be. Bobby witnesses Ted blanking out several times and realizes that Ted possesses psychic abilities, which 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 he is able to pass on to others by coming into physical contact with them. Ted places his hands on Bobby's shoulders one morning and later on that day, Bobby wins a three-card Monty game at the beach because he was able to read the card dealer's mind. As the two grow closer, Ted confesses to Bobby that he is being stalked by low men, the can-toy, evil servants of King's recurring villain, the Crimson King. The sign of these men include lost pet signs and chalk drawings of stars and moons. Ted asks Bobby to keep an eye out for their signs and to let him know when they are near. Ted also makes bets at a local bar to generate money and stay unnoticed. His bets always win, likely because of his psychic ability. It is revealed, though is only understandable to readers of King's other works, that Ted is in some way connected to the Dark Tower. He is hiding in Bobby's town as a means of escaping the struggle revolving around it. Ted makes occasional references to both the tower and its beams, including the Field of Roses in which it is situated. Bobby does begin to see the signs, but does not say anything to Ted because he is afraid of losing his new friend. One day he finds Carol lying in a grove of trees with a severely injured arm. She tells him that two bullies, Richie O'Meara and Willie Shearman, held her down while a third, Harry Doolin, beat her badly with a baseball bat. He carries her back to his apartment house, where Ted is waiting. They go inside the Garfield's apartment, and Ted has to cut off Carol's blouse to reset her arm, which turns out to be dislocated but not broken. Just as he manages to reset her arm, Liz, also looking badly injured, enters the apartment. It turns out that her employer and colleagues invited her to a supposed real estate seminar, which was an excuse for them to take advantage of her, something that Bobby dreamed of and Ted was able to describe to her due to his psychic abilities. Seeing Carol on Ted's lap while naked above the waist immediately causes her to think that Ted has been molesting Carol. Eventually, Liz calms down, takes Carol home, and decides to sit in the local park to gather her thoughts. Bobby takes a long nap, and when he awakens, he finds his mother asleep in her bed and Ted long gone. Bobby looks into his mother's purse and finds a lost pet poster appealing for information about a dog named Broadigan. He realizes his mother has telephoned the canned toy, Low Men, and told them of Ted's whereabouts. Bobby eventually catches up to Ted just as the Low Men are willing to take them away. They want to take what well, They want to take Bobby with them too, but Ted offers to work for them willingly if they let Bobby go. They give Bobby the final choice, and faced with going with Ted, whatever that, wherever that may be, or staying behind, Bobby chooses to stay and despises himself for that choice. After the low men leave with Ted, he comes into the bar to claim the payoff from the last bet Ted made to bankroll his escape, and takes it home to give to his mother to help them both escape Harwich, while simultaneously confronting her about her biased view of his father. The remainder of the stories details in brief Bobby's adolescence. He beats up Harry Doolin with a baseball bat, moves away from Harwich with his mother, starts smoking Chesterfield cigarettes, Ted's favorite brand, and is twice put in a juvenile detention facility. When he arrives home after his second incarceration, at this point it is 1965, he receives a letter from Carol with another envelope that tells him that it tells him it is from Ted. Bobby opens up the envelope and finds it's full of red rose petals, the ones which surround the dark tower, and he knows that somewhere Ted is free of the low men once again. He goes on to his mother, who seems to have grown prematurely old, and embraces her. She cries because of the mess they have made of their lives, and he encourages her that there is hope for both of them. Analysis. The collection begins with the title, 1960. They had a stick sharpened on both sides. So guys, I loved this story. It had elements of it, insomnia, the talisman, the gunslinger. The story of Ted Broadigan and Bobby Garfield and Carol Gerber and Sully John is one that King feels very comfortable writing. It's not the first time he's written about childhood, and as much as I can remember, this might be the last time he focuses on childhood from this point forward. But even though he's examined it in many of his previous works, this one as much as any of the childhood stories set in the 1960s, still feels very personal, and it should. After all, he's writing what he knows, and he knows what it's like to be a child during that time period. Now, much older, wiser, and reflective, he's able to dig back into those boxes of memories and recreate this time period and to have it be about that time period, unlike the similar similar era of It where the focus was on the characters and what it meant to be a child period. Now, we have a handful of people living in a very specific time, and whereas It could take place in any other time period, Low Men in Yellow Coats cannot take place in any time period other than the 1960s. Anyway, King's analysis on his generation begins with Bobby Garfield, whose father, we quickly learned, has died, and Bobby is focused on a Schwinn for his 11th birthday, though he won't get it because his mother has made that perfectly clear. King establishes the dynamics here very quickly and very naturally. Adults can understand Liz's bitterness towards her late husband due to the financial difficulties he'd placed her in, difficulties which have resulted with her having to be subjected to humiliation and rape in order to provide for her son. Yet simultaneously, King manages to make us feel for Bobby when he yearns for the bike because why shouldn't he yearn for the bike? He's a boy, and boys are meant for bikes. I do wonder, however... If there's a larger comment on the materialism that would go on to find this generation during the 1980s, as if wanting a bike was a sign of things to come. And as if to reinforce this, King introduces one of the novella's themes, that life isn't fair. It isn't fair that Bobby's father has died. It isn't fair that Liz has to do what she has to do. It isn't fair that Ted Brodigan will be enslaved over and over again. It isn't fair that Bobby can't have his bike. It isn't fair that Carol is attacked by the bully. It isn't fair that so many soldiers died in the Vietnam War. It isn't fair how they were treated when they came back. It isn't fair that the generation that showed so much promise lost their way along the line. These things are not fair, but the world goes on regardless. It's up to us to do the best we can in spite of the unfairness that will permeate this world day in and day out. King settles into a natural rhythm with the three kids, Bobby, Carol, and Sully John. This should come as no surprise as he's written childhood friendships with great success before with stories like The Body and It. He incorporates little flourishes that make it honest, like how each of the children so fresh to the world are each obsessed with a different word trying it out for the first time, making the word their own. Or how these kids repeat their parents without really knowing what it is they're repeating, like how Carol says that Bridget Bardot is trashy without her really even knowing what that means. Soon after, Bobby has his first real conversation with Ted who talks about time. The descriptions he gives of time, inspired by the writings of famous authors, speak to the life he's lived. Time is an old, bald cheater could very easily apply to the Crimson King, and that we are all times prisoners speaks to Ted's long imprisonment at the Crimson King's hands. Furthermore, when he starts talking about the possibility of alternate worlds, that is pure Dark Tower right there. Bobby spends some time with Sully John, And we get the easy dynamic between the two, King very deftly crafting the two distinct personalities, Bobby being more introspective and thoughtful and Sully John um, having a more outgoing personality. It's at this point where we get the, the first hint of the low men in the yellow coats, as Sully mentions having seen weird men in the park. King has spent the first 30 pages or so establishing the world of 1960 and its characters that at this point he should feel comfortable enough starting to weave in the supernatural. So when Bobby spends time with Ted, who then phases out and says ominously, one feels them first in the back of one's eyes. We should know that things are going to start to get good. We've established the characters. Now King can establish the plot. So Ted hires Bobby to keep his eyes open, specifically for the low men in yellow coats. Now, what a great visual, huh? I mean, with this, he demonstrates impeccable word choice that conjures the exact image that he'll go on to describe. The trench coat clad shadowy thugs, the name for the canned toy, the agents of the Crimson King is proof of everything that King is writing about storytelling and the beautiful power of the written word. Bobby agrees to watch out and by the end of the scene, the pseudo-father-son relationship is formed. Ted calms Bobby's nerve by placing his hands over his, and King writes very simply, It was big and warm and comforting. A man's hand. That's all he needed to write. He doesn't have to have Bobby think of his deceased father. The reader fills in the blanks. It's interesting to note that this comes right on the heels of the introduction to the Loeb Men. Such a connection only serves to enforce the limited time the two characters will have with each other. King builds up the threat and the mystery of the low men, their ability to not be seen, and their form of communication of using lost pet posters and hopscotch grids, church bells ringing at the wrong times, or church vandalism. This is yet another example of King talking to the larger, sorry, taking the larger supernatural concepts and grounding it with the everyday. As I said in my review of Insomnia, every time I can't find a sock or a remote control, I worry for a split second if Atropos had stolen it. Every time I sneeze, my first concern is that I've come down with Captain Trips. I can't walk past a sewer grate without wondering if a voice is going to bubble up from within. It's the same thing with these little details. It allows for a much stranger world to exist behind the one we walk through every day. Almost immediately after, while spending time with Carol and Sully John, Bobby spots one of those hopscotch grids. Afterward, King reveals to the first time that whatever the story is, though it may be taking place in 1960s Connecticut, this is a story that is connected to his larger work, The Dark Tower, when he says, there will be water if God wills it, and all things serve the... He might get cut off at the end there, But the Dark Tower fans know what he means. And my God, for the first time you're reading this, if you didn't expect it to be a Dark Tower book and you are a Dark Tower fan, oh, so exciting. The low Men are coming. They're scanning for Ted. And because Bobby has touched Ted, he can sense them as they search for him as well. Thankfully, Ted manages to hide them from their prying eyes. And because childhood is a blur, where the child is swept from wave to wave on currents they can't control drifts from supernatural experience to the very natural experience of a trip to the beach that includes a fight with his mother and culminates with the first kiss on the Ferris wheel. This moment between Bobby and Carol is a very nice moment, described beautifully, and it comes without the young, intense, longing love that had racked Ben Hanscom during the pages of It. It's a young romance, a cute romance, not built up into anything other than two close friends of the opposite sex who begin to experiment as their bodies, temperaments, and interests change. With that said, it doesn't mean that it doesn't have a lasting importance. The moment results with an emotional photograph that would remain in Bobby's mental scrapbook for the rest of his life because, as King writes... It was the kiss by which all the others of his life would be judged and found wanting. Liz then tells Bobby she'll have to go away for a seminar. News that doesn't make sense to Bobby. How can his mother be excited about this news and be crying at the same time? It's a deeply complicated situation that a child can't understand, but at this point, the reader knows what this should entail for Liz, and the ramifications here are heartbreaking. King shows us Liz's desperation. She can't afford to miss this. Yet Bobby can't stay with any of his friends, so she makes the unwise decision to let Broadigan take care of Bobby. It's unwise because while we all like Ted, if you look at it from an objective standpoint, the man is a strange stranger who Liz does not know at all. She should not trust him with her son because she has no reason to either trust or distrust him because she doesn't know him. Yet she asks Ted to take care of him, nevertheless, which shows us just exactly what kind of a bind she's in. And when Bobby walks Liz to Mr. Bitterman's car, it's it's a very uncomfortable scene. Bobby starts to understand that something is really wrong with his mother's trip. The way the two men elbow each other and grin. The way that Bitterman places his hand on the small of her back. And I'm sorry, I I don't know if anybody watches Portlandia out there, but there is an episode of the season 2 finale, I believe, with Bill Hader, who plays an Australian, and he keeps saying Birdman, but he can't say it Birdman. He always says it Bitterman. And so maybe it's Biderman. I don't know. I don't know if this guy's name is Biderman, but... All I can think of is that episode of Portlandia where Bill Harris keeps saying Bidman. So when Bobby walks Liz to Mr. Bitteman's car, it's a very uncomfortable scene. Bobby starts to understand that something is wrong with this mother's trip, the way that the two men elbow each other and grin, the way Bitteman places his hands on the back, on the small of her back. With Ted taking care of Bobby, Ted demonstrates both the best and the worst parenting. First, I mean, he attends Bobby's softball game an act which Liz has never fulfilled, and then follows it up by taking him to the seedier side of Bridgeport. It's the summer of endings and beginnings, the ending of his childhood and the beginning of his adulthood, and Ted personifies the parent who speaks to both. He supports his childhood endeavors, a softball game, joking about farting, but also ushers him into adulthood, and the world of adulthood is personified by this area of Bridgeport. It's here where he learns that life is not black and white. There aren't certainties. For instance, it had been drilled into him from Liz that his father had had been a no-good loser whose gambling addiction had left them in financial difficulties. When he goes to the billiard hall, he talks to a bartender who'd known his father who reveals that he had been a good man. And here Bobby learns that you can play cards, do a little gambling, and still be a good man. Bobby understands that with such a large bet, it means that Ted is getting ready to leave. In the taxi ride away from the billiard hall, they pass the low men and King allows a great description of a purple-bodied car with a dragonfly green interior, a cow print covered steering wheel. The only thing that saves him when he blocks his mind from them is picturing a naked Carol as a young adult and when he returns home he realizes that he's outgrowing his childhood. His transformation into adulthood is a rapid one. But he's still a kid, which makes it sad. He understands that he's about to leave it all behind. And this understanding comes with sadness, so it's no surprise that he bursts into tears when he next sees Carol. They discuss Ted, and they're come upon by a small pack of bullies, but are saved by Carol's mother's friend. That night, Bobby has a prophetic dream in which his mother is hunted through hotel corridors by the aggressors in both their lives. It is a very dark dream, adorned with the imagery of the Crimson King and even a reference to the tower. Here, King acknowledges that everything that occurs within the multiverse is as important as Roland the Gunslinger's quest. Everything does serve the beam, after all. Bobby discovers Carol after she's been beaten up by the bullies and brings her home to Ted and fix her. It's at this point when Liz returns home after having been brutalized at the hands of the office staff and can't see the good that Ted is doing, only the bad. Liz is truly awful in this scene. She lumps all men into the same group as her attackers and constantly belittles her son and Carol by referring to her as his little girlfriend. Ted leaves. And later, Bobby realizes that Liz had found one of the missing pet flyers um, and called the number. Bobby takes a taxi to Bridgeport and discovers that the low men have been waiting for Ted in the pool hall. Bobby narrowly escapes and sees Ted, but it's too late. The low men are waiting, and just as Ted arrives, they spring their trap. After waiting for over 200 pages, we finally get a great description of the low men and their cars, which come on page 223. Bobby looked around. The low men stood shoulder to shoulder surrounding them, penning them in their smell of sweat and maggoty meat, blocking off any sight of the street with their yellow coats. They were dark-skinned, deep-eyed, red-lipped, as if they had been eating cherries. But they weren't what they looked like. They weren't what they looked like at all. Their faces wouldn't stay in their faces, for one thing. Their cheeks and chins and hair kept trying to spread outside the lines. It was the only way that Bobby could interpret what he was seeing. Beneath their dark skins were skins as white as their pointed reet petite shoes. But their lips are still red, Bobby thought. Their lips are always red. And their eyes were always black. Not really eyes at all, but caves. And they are so tall, he realized. So tall and so thin. There are no thoughts like our thoughts in their brains, no feelings like our feelings in their hearts. From across the street, there came a thick, slobbering grunt. Bobby looked in that direction and saw that one of the Oldsmobile's tires had turned into a blackish-gray tentacle. It reached out, snared a cigarette wrapper, and pulled it back. A moment later, the tentacle was a tire again, but the cigarette wrapper was sticking out of it like something half-swallowed. Um... It's just awesome. it's a great great description super creepy. I love monster cars I love the description of the the low men even though King will later go on to change the description of what the low men really are and the um, the more he gets into the mythology and I'll talk about this later in the bonus episode but the can toy um, he goes on to really uh, classify what they are um, so if you have been waiting for more dark tower, page 225 is when it gets really really good. So King writes, you're a breaker Ted, you were made for it, born for it. And if we tell you to break, you'll break, by god. You can force me, I'm not so foolish as to think you can't, but if you leave him here, I'll give what I'll give what I want. I'll give what I have to you freely, and I have more to give than you could, well perhaps you could imagine. I want the boy, the low man in charge said, but now he sounded thoughtful, perhaps even doubtful. I want him as something, I want him as a pretty something to give to the king. I doubt if the Crimson King will thank you for a meaningless pretty if it interferes with his plans, Ted said. There is a gunslinger. Gunslinger, pa! Yet he and his friends have reached the borderland of Endworld, Ted said, and now he was the one who sounded thoughtful. If I give you what you want instead of forcing you to take it, I may be able to speed things up by 50 years or more. As you say, I'm a breaker, made for it and born for it. There aren't many of us. You need everyone, and most of all, you need me, because I'm the best. You flatter yourself, and you overestimate your importance to the king. Do I? I wonder. Until the beams break, the dark tower stands. Surely I don't need to remind you of that. It's one boy worth the risk. The low man taunt Bobby until he rejects Ted and begs to be released. This is a very sad, very, very sad ending for the relationship between Ted and Bobby. He begs to not be taken with him. And even though it's sad, even though it's very bleak, um, it's honest. Because he's a kid, and what kid wants to be taken away by monsters with his old friend? Um... So, I mean, it would have rang false if Bobby said, yes, I'll go with you. No, it it wouldn't have worked out like that. Um, But still, it's, it's, oh, it's brutal. Bobby returns home and then here is where everything begins to change. He has it out with his mother. He tries to move on and the trio of he, Carol, and Sully break up. Now we haven't spent much time with the three of them and this was not the central conceit of the story. So the news doesn't come with an emotional wallop. Besides, simply by writing a group of young friends, it, it, it invokes previous stories where this was the focus, so we're able to roll over the emotional component from previous novels into this one. So we've seen this before with The Body. We've seen this before with It. So because King has already done this, we're able to take those emotional beats and that, that feeling that we've had um, and just and pull it in, into this story. Bobby has really changed now as a result of his time with Ted and the Low Men. There's a disastrous moment on the baseball field where Bobby demonstrates a deep reservoir of anger. Bobby goes dark, like really dark, guys. You know, he waits for just the right moment to attack Carol's attacker and savagely beats him with a baseball bat. This scene reveals that Bobby has changed significantly, and there is a lot of hatred within him now. And things just go downhill for the character fast. While Lidge manages to turn her life around in Danvers, Bobby completely falls apart. He's a troublemaker in school. He starts smoking, drinking, and by 1963, he does his first prison sentence. Bobby is just, he's corrupted through and through from the events of what transpired with Ted and the Low Men. At one point, Bobby brutally beats up a kid, steals his guitar. Juxtapose that with a moment earlier in the novel when a pre-corrupted Bobby looked at two children in the sandbox, disgusted that one would simply take the other one's toy, oblivious to the younger one's tears. Now, Bobby is exactly that which had disgusted him when he was younger and King sets the stage for the thematic thread, um, of the rest of this novella collection. So before I get into the next story, I still want to tie up some loose ends here thematically from, uh, low men. And the first is on reading and writing. Now, as we all know, throughout the decades, King has crafted dozens of stand-ins for himself. Uh, Ben Mears, Jack Torrance, Jim Gardner, Paul Sheldon, Thad Beaumont, Bill Denro, Mike Noonan, Mort Rainey, Johnny Marinville are all characters who are published authors. King has explored the writing process and the power of storytelling through each of them in some way. Ben allowed King to explore recent success. Uh, Jack Torrance um, uh, was the the character that focused on the the balance between work and family. Jim Gardner was the focus on writing in relation to dependency. Paul Sheldon was a character that explored the trappings of writing uh, for fame and everything that goes along with that. Thad Beaumont was on writing and double lives. Mike Noonan was on the fear of writer's block. And Bill Denver is just the living thesis of his belief that writing about the things that go bump in the night helps exercise the very real demons that haunt us every day. With Ted Brodigan, King doesn't necessarily focus on the power of storytelling through the process of writing, but rather the power of storytelling through the process of reading. First, Ted will tell Bobby there are also books full of great writing that don't have any good stories. Read sometimes for the story, Bobby. Don't be like the book snobs who won't do that. Read sometimes for the words, the language. Don't be like the play it safers that won't do that. When you find a book that has both a good story and good words, treasure that book. And then Ted will give Bobby a novel that had only been realized 6 years before the events of this book during this particular time, a story that hit the world like a rock in a pond whose ripples are still being felt today. It was only a matter of time before King could write about the influence and the importance of Lord of the Flies, really, and he weaves it into low men in yellow coats so deftly, the underlying themes are hidden within the more overt love letter to its narrative. When Ted gives Bobby the book for his birthday, King writes... The name of the book was Lord of the Flies. There was no come-on line above the title, not even a discreet one like, A story you will never forget. All in all, it had a forbidding, unwelcome look, suggesting that the story lying beneath the cover would be hard. Bobby had nothing in particular against hard books, as long as they were part of one's schoolwork. His view about reading for pleasure, however, was that such stories should be easy— that the writer should do everything except move your eyes back and forth for you. If not, how much pleasure could there be in it? He started to turn the book over. Ted gently put his hand on Bobby, stopping him. Don't, he said, as a personal favor to me. Don't. Bobby looked at him, not understanding. Come to the book as you would. Come to an unexplored land. Come without a map. Explore it. Draw your own map. "'Well, what if I don't like it?' Ted shrugged. "'But don't finish it. A book is like a pump. It gives nothing unless you first give to it. You prime a pump with your own water. You work the handle with your own strength. You do this because you expect to get back more than you give. Eventually, you go along with that?' Bobby nodded. "'How long would you prime a water pump and flail the handle if nothing came out?' "'Not too long, I guess.' This book is two hundred pages, give or take. You read the first ten percent, twenty pages. That is, I already know your math isn't as good as your reading. And if you don't like it by then, if it isn't giving you more than it's taking by then, put it aside. Um, you know, and he goes on, but it's just, it's just such a great examination of the the importance of of reading and 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 how to read really. So, but anyway, going back to Lord of the Flies, you can't. You can't discount the importance of the usage of this particular novel. It was wisely chosen on the part of King. For one, it functions as the symbolic foreshadowing of Bobby's generation who began as innocent schoolchildren, but who would be transformed through violence in a foreign land. Because the Vietnam War will play so heavily into the narrative, it's clear that King is choosing this novel very, very purposefully. You know, Similarly, when Ted leaves behind Of Mice and Men for Bobby to read, it points the reader to the very tragic ending that's soon to come. Now, I want to talk about Liz. Now, King has written about faulty adults um, through the perspective of children before, most notably It. Uh, and the body in particular. With these two stories, we saw the the fallibility of adulthood in moments where children realize that adults can make mistakes and the mistakes are more emotionally complex than children ever could understand. King continues this examination with Bobby's mother Liz, and the awful self-punishing lengths she'll go through in order to survive as a single mother. King telegraphs the relationship between Liz and her boss within the first five pages through the perspective of Bobby, who notices that the two adults have a way of looking at each other and the way they talk on the phone late at night. It's a very character-based approach to the information, which adult readers will pick up on right away, but leaves Bobby in the semi-dark. Later, Bobby's mom returns home on his birthday with smeared lipstick. He'll hear her crying in her bedroom at night. Though what she goes through is awful, King is not making her a saint or any sort of martyr. She's lucky that Bobby is well adjusted because if he, if he wasn't so centered, she could have a real problem on her hands. Liz is self absorbed, judgmental, and demonstrated with Ted, um, as demonstrated with Ted, or with the anecdote from Bobby about his second grade teacher, because as King writes, Liz's opinions of people hardened swiftly. When she wrote bad under her mental picture of you, she almost always wrote in ink. Later, when Ted offers Bobby a job to read to him, Liz flashes out in smug anger on page 57. You'll have to pay him extra to do the crossword for you, she said getting up, and although Bobby didn't understand the remark, he was astonished by the cruelty he sensed in it, embedded like a piece of glass in a marshmallow. It was as if she wanted to make fun of Ted's failing eyesight and his intellect at the same time, as if she wanted to hurt him for being nice to her son. Bobby was still ashamed at deceiving her and frightened that she would find out, but now he was also glad, almost viciously glad. She deserved it. King crafts a scene so firmly planted in Bobby's shoes, you really can't help but hate her. Bobby asks her for money to go to the beach, and Liz decides to lecture him instead, all the while not realizing that Bobby is aware of her hypocritical ways. It's an odd awesome moment between children and their parents. You can feel the surge of Bobby's emotion and the resentment, and while Liz is being insanely cheap, she does have a point there. Also, Liz and sex are inextricably intertwined, but sex, at first, is never spoken of. A slip shows. She'll talk on the phone late at night. She'll cry in her bedroom. Her lipstick is is smeared. These are all signs of pointing to a sex life, but at no point is this ever explicitly stated. Liz is defined by her abusive sex life, so it's interesting that we only get it through the edges. When it comes to sex for Liz, it's a secretive thing. It must be kept in the shadows in order to keep her sanity and her son safe, to the point where she addresses his safety with him, asking him about Ted and and if Ted has touched him. You know, she can't even broach the subject. Again, all aspects of sex are restrained. Liz will eventually ask Bobby if Ted touches him, but it's only after she was unable to get it out that first time. She plays emotionally manipulative games with Bobby. When Bobby is asked to eat at Sully John's, he has to decline because he knows if his mother returns home and sees the meal that she'd cooked is untouched, she would get back at Bobby in some regard, some way, somehow, some when. And while I'm sure that this is not an autobiographical aspect of King's own childhood, there has to be some emotional truth to Bobby's life living with a single parent. Now, from what I can remember reading, Ruth King was a great woman, and I, from everything that King has written, she was. Uh, he, he loved his mother, and this is not supposed to be some sort of surrogate for his mother, but that you know. King growing up with his brother and no father in the picture, uh, the the financial difficulties I'm sure he was able to pull from some emotional truth there. Okay, guys, let's talk about Ted. Let's talk about Ted Broad again, and then we'll talk about Bobby. So, though Ted's primary motivation is to stand against the forces of the Crimson King, a Dark Tower-specific plot point, from a symbolic standpoint, he's the everyman rebelling against the corrupted system. He'll serve as the model to which Bobby's generation will strive to reach for and sadly, ultimately fail to achieve. Instead, the generation will grow into the corporate leaders of the world, furthering to wrap it in chains rather than trying to free it. It's only by the end of the novella collection where this is entirely clear, though at the end of Low Men in Yellow Coats, it points us in that direction. When Liz says, oh Bobby, we've made such a mess of things, you and me. Still, during the course of this story, Ted functions as a shining example of what we can all be, a poet rebel, an intellectual, but a fighter nevertheless. No matter how many times he's imprisoned, he finds a way to escape, and despite the horrors he's seen and the horrors he's been forced to commit, he continues to fight and rage against the establishment. He's the ideal towards which we should all strive. However, there's another side we, about Ted that we have to talk about here, Liz asks Bobby if Ted touches him. And King does spend a moment establishing that, yes, he does. Not in the sexual way that Liz fears, but in a way that makes Bobby uncomfortable nevertheless. Now, let's unpack that for a minute. I'm going to talk a little bit more about how the story deals with sex. We certainly know that Ted is one of the good guys. So his intentions are not to sully Bobby in any way. The love the man has for the boy, I believe, is completely genuine. And it isn't as if all of the touches are inappropriate, a rustle of hair, a clap on the shoulder. But when talking about the low men, Ted puts his forehead against Bobby's, his hand around the nape of Bobby's neck. I mean, that motion, that movement, that placement suggests intimacy, right? And intimacy between a strange man and a boy is clearly inappropriate, as long as that man is a stranger with cruel intentions. But intimacy does not necessarily imply sexual intimacy. It can suggest trust, love, and openness, which is what I believe transpires in this moment. I don't believe that King is attempting to make us distrust Ted, but I do think he means to raise connotations of molestation, because in this case, their friendship takes place during Bobby's final summer of childhood. During the summer, he'll see that the world is not a civilized place. It's filled with savages with pointed spears ready to stick each other. If that's the ultimate point that King is trying to make, it stands to reason that he symbolizes this with the slight suggestion of a loss of innocence. There's even a moment where Ted is whispering in Bobby's ear an act which Bobby recognizes as intimate and suddenly pushes him away saying, good God, what am I doing? Later, when Bobby is approached by a stranger in the park who offers sexual favors, Bobby immediately thinks of Ted and how close they would get sometimes. At this moment, Bobby realizes that the two are similar. It isn't a coincidence that when the low men confront Bobby and Ted, one low man keeps caressing Bobby on the neck, causing awful feelings within Bobby. It's an inversion, a perversion of Ted's touch. And after he's confronted by the low men, he gives up his principles. He lets Ted be abducted. He renounces his bond with Ted. Yeah, he's just a child, but from a symbolic standpoint, this is the corruption of Bobby's innocence and belief. Bobby returns home, and his confrontation with Liz is depressing. On one hand, yeah, it's great that Bobby finally stands up to her, but the physical threat speaks to a darker future for Bobby. It's only after Ted entered Bobby's life that the more squalid aspects of adulthood manifest themselves. Liz's sexual humiliation and defiling at the hands of her office staffs comes to the forefront. Bobby, I'm sorry, Carol is brutally attacked by the bullies. Bobby learns that he's not strong enough to stand by Ted. Or has King simply managed to drape Liz's understanding of love and intimacy over the story? Because what is the relationship between Bobby and Ted but one of affection? This is something that Liz does not understand. So it makes sense that when he edges towards a situation with affection, he's startled from its unfamiliarity. I mean, just look at the conclusion of this novella in the apocalyptic kitchen scene in which Bobby professes his love for Ted. There's nothing dangerous about it. It's simply a boy professing his love towards his father figure. And when Ted responds, there is nothing seedy about it. The only thing seedy is Liz's interpretation of it. So, in the end, I think that Ted represents the fighter fighting against a broken society filled with monsters. Just look at Bobby at the conclusion, a broken, angry young man moved to tears when he discovers that Ted has escaped. Potential once again fills his life. Let's talk about Bobby. Bobby is his father's son, or at least that's the fear that Liz has. This short story contains one coin, two sides, but the two sides are still the same coin. The low men in yellow coats, from a plot perspective, are the supernatural forces that are after Ted Broadigan. But if you were to describe the definition of the low men to Liz, she would immediately think of Bobby's father. So when looking at it from that perspective, the story revolves around Bobby simultaneously seeking out the low men in order to get closer to his deceased father while hiding from them so they won't take his current one. And Bobby gets caught between the two lives he could live if he is his father's son, the life as a low man or the life of Ted Brodigan. Take, for instance, Bobby's demonstration of skills at the midway when he uses Ted's power to beat the card shark. The simple act of gambling places him in his father's shoes, and though Bobby recognizes the card shark as a low man, the decision to engage with the low man's game places Bobby one step closer to becoming a low man himself. The battle for Bobby's soul takes place over the 200 pages of this text, and while it's great to see him fall into a relationship with a father figure, we have to constantly ask ourselves, is it healthy for him to do so? I've already spoken of the suggestion of molestation. Furthermore, the closer Bobby grows to Ted, Ted reveals that he's more and more interested in gambling. Albeit, he has a supernatural edge, but isn't that just one more excuse? In the absence of his biological father, a gambler, he's replaced him with another gambling father. Let's not forget that there's a danger to Ted. Despite the fact that we like Ted, we really never get to know Ted. He makes Bobby uncomfortable at times. His spells make him scary and frightening. So the time that Ted spends with Bobby shouldn't be read as entirely uplifting. King doubles down on this, with the revelation that Bobby winds up having a troubled life, a dark period when he was often bad and always confused, a Bobby Garfield he felt he didn't really know. The cop who arrested him for the first time had blonde hair, and what came to Bobby's mind as the cop led him away from the mom-and-pop store Bobby had broken into were all those blonde kids in Village of the Dam. Sadly, Bobby's life trajectory symbolizes the corruption of King's generation, He's an innocent young boy who buckles when faced with the threats of the real world and turns to anger because of it. Bobby's story and low men in yellow coats by extension is a very pessimistic look at his generation. All right, so I want to talk about Stephen Kingisms. the first of which um, are children's and, children and adults. So we have seen this before in It and the Body, like I've said before. Then we have The Child and the Man, uh, which we have seen before with uh, *Salem's Lot*, with um, *Callahan*—sorry, not Callahan, but Ben Mears and uh, Mark Petrie. We've seen it with *The Gunsinger, with Jake and Roland. We've seen it with *Revival* with Charlie Jacobs and Jamie. Number three is children seeing what adults cannot. Um, one of the aspects of it was that there is this other world um, out there that only children can see. And we see that here with you know, the, the hopscotch grids and just adults tune out this, this other world completely. And then we have bullies. Bullies has always been a major aspect of King's writing right from the very get-go with... Um, Carrie, and we have Carrie, and then you know we have the bully in um, in the body and we have the bully in it so bullies are something that we see again and again and again now let's talk about the easter eggs which are the cameos and the shout outs to other Stephen King works so we have the first being um, other worlds than these so at one point Bobby thinks that there um, are other worlds than this which is a Direct shout out to the very, very famous line from The Gunslinger, in which Jake Chambers said, Go then, there are other worlds than these. Number two, of course, is The Crimson King. I mean, The Crimson King was first introduced to the pages of Insomnia and was lastly just teased in the pages of um Wizard wizarding glass and is going to come back in a very 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 big way in the sequel to the talisman black house where we get a lot of information about the the, the machinations of the the crimson king but here for the first time we we really understand um, what the crimson king is up to with uh, the breakers this is the first time that that term is is coined and the breakers tie directly into the uh, the plot point from the dark tower that the beams are falling and speaking of which, in mean, the Dark Tower, I mean this is a Dark Tower story, so that is a huge uh, Easter egg. We also have Ka. Uh, Ted tells Bobby that he must stay with his mother because it's Ka, and Ka is fate—the word for fate that is um, spoken of um, most often in the pages of the Dark Tower. And lastly, the regulators. Bobby thinks that the low men are regulators. The regulators, of course, are a uh, is is a novel written by Richard Bachman. Now, I want to talk about what the the most important text is and what is the the aspect in the excerpt from this novel that just really speaks to the themes. And you can find that on page 153. What if there were no grown-ups? Suppose the whole idea of grown-ups was an illusion. What if their money was really just playground marbles, their business deals no more than baseball card trades there were there wars only games of guns in the park what if they were all still snotty nosed kids inside their suits and dresses christ that couldn't be could it it was too horrible to think about so that serves as the thesis to the rest of the collection and it turns out that yes really that that is the truth all right, everyone, um, that's all I have for Hearts in Atlantis, and now I'm going to get on to my review... I'm sorry, it was my review of Loman and Yellow Coats, now I'm going to get on to my review of Hearts in Atlantis. The next part of the book, and I'm going to be reading the Wikipedia summary here, the next part of the book, Hearts in Atlantis, takes place in 1966, and is narrated by Peter Riley, who has just started at the University of Maine. He's been a good student before, but is drawn to the... In- interminable card game of hearts that is going on in the common room in the all-male dormitory where he lives. This marathon of hearts is initiated by Ronnie Malfont, a young man with poor hygiene and a corrosive personality but a whiz at the game. Ironically, it is a game he plays with Riley that begins the quote-unquote mad season. The games are frowned upon but allowed by the dorm's floor proctor David Dearborn, derogatorily called Deary by the Dorm Boys. The story explores how the University of the 1960s was in Atlantis, an imaginary kingdom isolated from the troubles of the world. The young men's student drafts deferments are shielding them from serving in the Vietnam War. However, as more and more of the students become addicted to playing hearts, their grades begin to suffer and they are putting themselves at risk of losing their deferment. Peter Riley quickly falls behind in his studies, but even though he knows he might flunk out, he was unable to stop himself. Meanwhile, he meets Carol Gerber, Bobby Garfield's friend and childhood sweetheart from Low Men in Yellow Coats. Peter Riley falls in love with her, and with her help tries to cure himself of the addiction to hearts. However, he is too self-involved and therefore unaware that Carol herself has become caught up in an escapist addiction of her own student activism, her own attempt to pay tribute to her friendship with Bobby Garfield and call—and a call to action to stop the war. Stokely Stoke-Jones, a firebrand activist who cannot get around without crutches, introduces the peace sign to Peter and his friend Stanley Skip Kirk by displaying it on the back of his jacket. As Peter Riley and his friend's self-destructive addiction to hearts continue, the Vietnam War grows closer, and signs of defiance appear in the hearts and minds of the students, even in Riley's roommate Nathan Hoppenstand, a shy pre-dent student struggling with doing what he feels is right and or and just. What he feels is right and just, or disappointing his parents. One event catalyzes the resistance to the war when a message spray painted on a campus wall contains a then scandalous suggestion to F. Johnson and a call for the U.S. to leave Vietnam. is flanked by peace signs which draw the attention towards jones who is apparently trying to wake up the students to the atrocity of the war riley and his compatriots in the dorm which has been suffering a rash of student failures and withdrawals due to failing grades by this time he says they were majoring in hearts and riley is taken by surprise when carol announces she will be leaving school she explains by telling him about bobby what he did for her and that her decisions are forever influenced by what Bobby did for her. She and Riley make love for the first time in his car, and she leaves the next day leaving a note describing why she did what she did, and what happened the previous night was special for her, and a warning. Get out of the card game. He reads the note, then breaks down despite Carol's firm belief that hearts don't break, they only bend. Peter wonders about the hearts of those who are still protected in innocence. What about hearts in Atlantis? After Thanksgiving break where Peter conscientiously joins the anti-war movement by drawing the peace sign on the back of his high school jacket. Peter tries to pull himself away from the hearts game already starting by returning students but is roped in by Ronnie and loses himself in the game as he did before. As the games continue a massive thunderstorm approaches the campus and soon freezing rain and hail descend. As Peter plays a game where he holds an apparently superior hand and intends to sink Ronnie once and for all, Jones is spotted on the commons by one of the players, and soon all the players watch as he tries to make his way across the rain-slickened walk. As they watch, they begin to poke fun at Jones' seemingly self-destructive charge, cheering him on, and suddenly Peter hears Carol in his head about the boys that beat her up about how they were laughing as they did it. Even with this, he can't stop himself. Man, we couldn't stop laughing. Then Stoke Jones loses his balance, falls, landing in the ice cold water, and the group of boys, still inexplicably laughing, head down to pull him out and take him to the infirmary where he is held for observation. Nathan reveals that Jones was the sole survivor of a car crash, the cause of his crippling injuries. The group comes together after Jones is admitted and Skip talks to them about a plan he has. Afterwards, Skip and Peter head back to the dorm, wondering how it happened, how they had devolved into that savage laughter. When Peter mentions he dreamed about being the hero, Skip replies, whoever dreamed about being part of the lynch mob? When they return to the dorm, students are cleaning up and getting ready to play again. Ronnie taunts Peter, but Peter is cured of heart's mania and turns him down, resolving to salvage what is left of the term and hold on to his work-study scholarship. Shortly afterward... A meeting is called by Dearborn, where the dean and a school official are present. Dearborn begins by leveling charges against Stoke Jones for the graffiti. However, Skip, who had expected this meeting, details Dearborn's accusations by saying that he himself had been wearing the peace sign on his own clothing. Then Peter admits to wearing it on his jacket, and other members of the dorm attest to wearing the same sign themselves and lie about wearing it for most of the semester. Skip ends by suggesting that since Jones is suffering from pneumonia... He would not be a credible source if he claimed responsibility for the graffiti. The two school officials leave after the dean tells them what Peter calls an epitaph of their age. You fellows have disappointed me. Dearborn, disgraced and alone, leaves the dorm and joins a fraternity, his credibility lost. He and Skip pass, but barely. He wonders if his professors were lenient on him because they might feel responsible if he got drafted and subsequently killed in Vietnam, and then Peter receives a package from Carol contains a copy of Lord of the Flies by William Golding and a newspaper article of a protest she participated in. It foreshadows the activist group she eventually gets involved in, one that resorts to terrorism, with demonstrations that will eventually turn fatal. Ronnie flunks out and is subsequently drafted, but claims he is the ultimate winner of the Hearts game. At the end of the novella, Peter reunites with Skip when they are adults. Skip has become a well-known, controversial artist, and they reminisce about how they had such great ideals And how they failed to live up to those ideals skip consoles him with the fervent we tried analysis 1966 hearts in atlantis man we couldn't stop laughing so remember this explores an entire generation and king manages to build his thesis through personal experience low men in yellow coats touched upon familiar ground in the sense that we've seen coming of age stories set in the 60s before but not with the pessimistic flavor that tinged the opening story to this collection Here, he writes about a period of time that he has not explored before, and that's the college years. Hearts in Atlantis, both the collection and this particular story, was an interesting read for me the first time around as it was published during my freshman year of college. With this new experience so raw and fresh, the second entry in this publication couldn't have come at a better time. Though 33 years separated the college experience of these characters and my own experience, some things don't change, and King captured that perfectly. King's Introduction to Hearts in Atlantis serves as a great thesis uh, for the upcoming story, which is found on page 257. College is always a time of change, I guess, the last major convulsion of childhood, but I doubt there were ever changes of such magnitude as those faced by the students who came to their campuses in the late 60s. He teases the events that will sweep through the country and places in the foreground a game of hearts, that will run throughout the story pete our main character refers to carol so first-time readers will see that these stories are going to have an interconnectivity never seen before in a single collection the next through line comes with ronnie malenfant who embodies the qualities of the violent children of lord of the flies a low man walking among us hearts in atlantis starts as a palette cleanser to the dark ending of low men in yellow coats It's light world-building of life in college, with Pete's roommate, and the little truths like Skip's judgment of everyone as he examines their record collection, which is something we all did during my time, except it was CDs, and I really wonder how college kids peruse each other's music nowadays. On the way to get something to eat at the dining commons, something that can't be described but only experienced, they spot the peace sign for the first time in the back of Stoke Jones. What's the significance of the sign appearing on Stoke, a half-crippled young man? Is King suggesting that the ideals of the peace sign never stood a chance in this world? It doesn't take long for King to introduce and establish Ronnie Malenfant, who is so over-the-top, so insulting, so annoying and obnoxious that I'd love to say that he's a character, but he's not. I know Ronnie Malenfant. I'm sure you do, too. Pete and Carol begin their romance... And it's a perfunctory gesture for each of them to let each other know that they have a significant other back home. This, like so many aspects of the story ring true. How many high school romances die on the vine on the first year of college? At least for two characters in this novel. One half of one of the romances belongs to none other than Sully John from Low Men in Yellow Coats. King updates us on the goings-on throughout the world and ties it all back to the University of Maine students who are beginning to slip in their grades due to their constant gaming of hearts. I should have noted this by now, but every college student who went to college after the Vietnam War will never understand that being in college and the possibility of flunking out of college literally meant life and death. With the draft existing... The college students, exempt from the draft, flunking out of college meant the possibility of being forced to go to war. It's not something that I can relate to. And with each year growing further away from Vietnam, less and less and less of us are able to relate to it. As Vietnam intensifies, the students find themselves talking more and more about it, and even Pete's roommate, Nate, who seems so rock-solid in his ways, is shown to be changing as the result of the times. In this case, it's his musical interests, which now include Phil Ox, who sadly is a folk singer that isn't talked about as much as he probably deserves to be. Anyway, this leads directly to Nate and Stoke and Carol's first draft protest. Later, Nate discusses the protest and admits that he couldn't march due to his fear of being arrested and being spotted by his parents. He sees this as a weakness, not unlike the moment of weakness demonstrated by Bobby as the low men converged on Ted. Carol then has a conversation with Pete about the reasons why she marched and why she will continue to march. She looks to her and our past by telling the story of how the boys had hit her with the bat and how Bobby had rescued her, carrying her up the hill despite his smaller size, displaying a strength and bravery that she too wants to possess. She tells him of Bobby's attack on Harry Doolin and sees it as a way to stand up to the bullies of the world, something else that she wishes to emulate. She then points the reader in the direction of the future with the knowledge that Sully John is going to war. Carol then breaks up with Pete, letting him know that she wouldn't be returning to college after Thanksgiving, and Pete's tearful reaction shows how young our characters still are. It's another way to demonstrate the sheer youth of being 18 or 19, and reinforces the truth that 18 and 19-year-olds are being killed off in a world away. When he returns home during Thanksgiving, such a momentous period in a freshman's life, Pete draws a peace sign on the back of the jacket, and King gives a brief but poignant look at Pete's life from that point forward with the jacket on page 355. I felt equipped to wear the jacket, though, and I did. I spilled beer and cigarette ashes on it, puked on it, bled on it, got tear-gassed in Chicago while wearing it and screaming. The whole world is watching at the top of my lungs. Girls cried on the intertwined GF on the left breast. By my senior year, those letters were dingy gray instead of white, and one girl lay on it while we made love. We did it with no protection, so there's probably a trace of semen on the quilted lining too. By the time I packed up and left LSD Acres in 1970, the peace sign I drew on the back in my mother's kitchen was only a shadow, but the shadow remained. Others might not see it, but I always knew what it was. Now, I'm not informed enough to speak in detail about 1966, about Johnson's presidency, or about the goings-on in Vietnam, but I can make a stray observation about the graffiti that is spray-painted on the wall. F. Johnson, it says, president murderer. Pete explains how radical this is, and I think about the fact that spray-painting this uh, on a wall had impact. I, I just I can't get that out of my mind. I mean, compare that to today where social media feeds are littered with similar sentiments. The reasons why have changed, but the sentiments are still the same. The emotion behind it is the same. It doesn't matter if you lean left or right. If there's a president sitting in the White House, one side is going to be extremely angry and will let you know how they feel about it. And the heart of the novella comes to the forefront. During a storm in which the sleet was driving down, the students watch Stoke try and make his way up the hill and begin to laugh and chant his name. All at once it hits Pete, remembering Carol's story of the kids who had beat her with the baseball bat the years before. And while it's a room full of students laughing at a cripple kid, it's about one of the lone social rebels struggling, being mocked by those who were too caught up in the immediate temptations in their lives to worry about any larger picture. The students then have their I am Spartacus moment with the administration over the graffiti. And later, Peter gets a letter from Carol in which she's sent him Lord of the Flies. As Pete looks back, he thinks of how Carol has become Red Carol. And this hints at a darker future for her. The years speed by and Pete reunites with Skip at the hospital. And when he says they tried, it's King speaking for his entire generation. So Easter eggs. Kenny Oster. At one point in the story, Pete's spot at the table is taken by a man named Kenny Oster. This character, or one with the same name, also appears in Bag of Bones. And then we have Derry. A couple of the kids get the Derry news delivered to their dorm, and Carol, Stoke, and Nate get arrested in Derry during a protest and are brought to Witcham Street. So with Hearts in Atlantis out of the way, up next is Blind Willie. This short story was originally published in October of 1994, and in 1997 was published as part of King's limited edition collection of six stories. For its inclusion in Hearts in Atlantis, the story was heavily revised. Blind Willie is about a Vietnam veteran's penance after the war. The main character in the story is Willie Shearman, and the story takes place over a single day in December of 1983. At first, we see him commuting from Connecticut to New York City, like any normal businessman. We then discover that he has no stable job, his office is empty, and how he elaborately disguises himself as a blind Vietnam War vet sitting on the same sidewalk location in downtown New York City for years, with a carefully crafted sign listing the cause of his sight loss and his reasons for begging. It's not an act, however, as he appears to have a... somatoform disorder and becomes blind every afternoon at the same time of day he was caught in a firefight and temporarily blinded. We also learned that he was in combat with John Sullivan and Ronnie Malinfont and saved Sullivan's life. Willie also keeps a scrapbook about Carol Gerber who had become part of a student activism group who had uh, become increasingly militant under the guidance of a Svengali-like leader named Raymond Fiegler a name with the initials RF suggesting that he is Randall Flagg the group become responsible for a bombing at a recruiting office. The bomb had gone off early, killing money, and there is evidence that Carol tried to stop the bombing but was intercepted by Fiegler and led away before it went off. She acquired the name Red Carol, and was believed killed when their headquarters was raided and the building accidentally set afire. Flagg got away, naturally, as he always seemed to do. He has never forgotten the day when Carol was beaten up by Harry Doolin while he and Richie O'Meara held her down and views his blindness as a form of penance. Before he heads out to his street corner, he writes an apology for hurting Carol over and over, the huge amount of notebooks showing he has been doing this every day for years. During the course of this day, he is accosted by a beat cop who is taking a bribe not to arrest Willie for vagrancy. This officer tells Willie the price is going up and suggests he would be interested in digging into who Willie really is. Willie scares him away by suggesting he is being recorded for such a threat, but wonders how he was going to deal with the greedy policeman. At the end of the day, his sight begins to return, signifying it is time to go. He removes the makeup and uniform behind closed doors and returns home to his suburban lifestyle and gains inspiration on how to deal with the policeman, although the idea itself is never explained, just before he goes to sleep. Analysis 1983 God bless us, everyone. We reunite with Willie Shearman, one of the bullies from Low Men in Yellow Coats, who was referenced in the pages of Hearts in Atlantis as Carol had told Pete that William had stolen Bobby's baseball glove. Vietnam was teased as early as Low Men in Yellow Coats and served as the global backdrop against the college struggles of the characters in Hearts in Atlantis, and here, Vietnam is addressed directly with Bill, who had served in the war. Two pages in, King continues the game, the theme of a lost civilization, as Bill looks at the city and thinks it's a dead Atlantis. We follow Bill throughout the day and begin to realize that he's a secretive man, changing train cars when people start to get accustomed to him, lying to people in his building about the name of his wife and whether or not he has kids. We learn that he had served in Vietnam with Sully John. But more interestingly, we learn that he has an office on the fifth floor, one on the sixth floor, and a trapdoor that runs between. In the sixth floor, Bill transforms into Willie. King details the lengths this character goes to transform from one person to the next, from Bill to Repairman Willie, from Repairman Willie to Blind Willie. Blind Willie's flashback to Vietnam reveals that when he saved Sully, he had to carry him, shades of Bobby Garfield carrying Carol. While sitting on the street corner, a fellow vet runs into him and name drops a character who will appear in the next story, Diefenbacher. The antagonist cop, Wheelock, really sticks it to Blind Willie, and I'm not sure how we're supposed to feel about this. I mean, are we supposed to feel sympathy for Willie? Because everything that Wheelock is trying to do is based on accurate concerns. Willie is scamming everyone. Regardless, Wheelock is not a sympathetic character, so we definitely aren't supposed to be rooting for him, that's for sure. Anyway, Willie heads back to the building to transform back, and we learn more about Carol and how he feels responsible for the deaths she caused in Danbury due to the path he helped set her on back in 1960. We learn of the bomb that went off on the Danbury-Yukon campus, how it was set to go off in the morning just before people were there, but when it didn't, she rushed in to try and find where it was. And here's the important part, guys. Was escorted out by the head of the Militant Students for Peace. A man by the name of it, wait for it, Raymond Feigler. Who's that? We'll just look at the initials and his motivations and longtime King fans will tell you that he's been known throughout the multiverse by the name of Martin Broadcloak, Walter O'Dim, but most famously, Randall Flagg. He then dwells on how he's gonna take care of his Wheelock problem and thinks about becoming a fourth personality that could take care of him. We don't know how, but how else could he have been taken care of? It seems as though the fourth personality will murder him. It's the only thing that I can think of, because he's basing the character off Slocum, who will find out was given the order to shoot one of the other soldiers in order to put an end to the village massacre that Ronnie Malenfant had begun with the murder of Mama-san. Slocum is not a character we know well, but what we know is that he'll pull the trigger in order to eliminate a problem. All in all, like, as you can see, I didn't have much to say about this entry. It's my least favorite entry in the collection. And while I think it's an interesting take on the concept of the homeless vet, it just it doesn't feel in line with the other stories. Up next, we have Why We're in Vietnam. Why We're in Vietnam describes a reunion of two veterans, Sully John and Bobby Garfield's childhood friend and a former former army officer named Diefenbacher, who was still thought of as the new lieutenant at the funeral of a third sully john has become a car salesman and apparently is good at his job as the two men find a reprieve from the funeral music they share their thoughts about what veterans of vietnam have in common but also revisit an incident in dong ha province that almost escalated into a massacre initiated by ronnie malenfant a former student and player in the hearts game hearts in atlantis Earlier that day, two helicopters had crashed, and Sully John, Diefenbacher, Malenfant, and Willie Shearman, as well as other members of the squad, Delta Lightning, ran to the wrecks under enemy fire to rescue the badly burned pilots. The stress of the incident had built until they reached the village in Dong Ha, where Malenfant vowed to kill everyone in the village as a message to the enemy. When an old lady accosted him, Malenfant threw her to the ground and started stabbing her with his bayonet. Diefenbacher, now in charge after the commanding officer was killed at the helicopter rescue, nods to another soldier named Slocum, who shoots a soldier near Malenfant to stop the impending massacre. Later that day, Sullivan is gravely wounded and airlifted out of a combat zone after Willie carries him to the medical helicopter. It is then that he hallucinates seeing the old lady Old Vietnamese woman, Mama San, sitting in the chopper with him as she continues to show up from that point forward. In the beginning, he dreads seeing her, but as time goes on, he becomes relaxed and even pleased to see her like an old friend. Diefenbacher begins to share his deep-seated beliefs that their entire generation failed in Vietnam and in the years that followed, that their generation prefers to observe rather than act. Sullivan, unsettled by the prospect of listening to him illustrate this concept in greater detail, opts out of dinner with Diefenbacher and his girlfriend and chooses to drive home. During the drive home, he discovers that Mama-san is with him, and he enthusiastically shares the events of the day with her until he is caught in a traffic jam. He exits his vehicle to smoke, then sees a woman who, at first glance, looks like Carol. When he approaches her, he realizes that she's not Carol, and shortly after that moment things start falling out of the sky, beginning with a kitschy lampshade and swiftly escalating to other objects of consumer goods, cordless phones, a grand piano, appliances, and a long yellow coat like the low men wear. He's struck by one more object, picks it up to discover that it's Bobby Gar- Garfield's Alvin Dark Club. He tries to make it back to his car, and suddenly sees Mama-san glowing brightly, and she speaks for the first time, saying that she will keep him safe. He abruptly finds himself back in his car, with no sign of the fall of objects, but the glove is still there, and he fades while inhaling the smell of summer from the glove. Diefenbacher reads about John Sullivan the next morning in the New York Post. Analysis: Why we're in Vietnam, 1999. When someone dies, and you think about the past. We reunite with Sully at a funeral, which doesn't bode well for his ultimate ending, which will take place at the end of the story. King immediately places us in Dongha with horrifically injured Sully screaming about the recently murdered Mama-san. Now, whether this character, Mama-san, is a ghost or a mental apparition, apparition he can only see. Um, he sees her as soon as he's placed in the chopper and throughout the years. The corruption that had begun in the conclusion of Low Men in Yellow Coats with Sully's realization that his old girlfriend is a militant fugitive wanted for murder and that his hometown has become run down. Sully has a nice reunion with Diffenbacher at the funeral, and they have an observant observant conversation on the tropes of Vietnam vets. It's basically Jeff Foxworthy's, you know you're a redneck routine, except applied to Vietnam veterans. And then comes the most interesting part of the story, the traffic jam, which... I know it doesn't sound very interesting, but King takes an everyday circumstance and builds something special out of it. Sully's memories are stirred up by the funeral, and there's a great line um, about how Pags was a good guy, but not good enough to justify having to remember all this crap. I'm paraphrasing as he began smoking again. King teases Sully's heart attack with a drying of his mouth, the acceleration of his heartbeat, and the black dots that dance before his eyes. He gets out of his car, and while looking at the other drivers, he thinks he sees a 35-year-old Carol Gerber. While he makes his way towards her, one of the more surreal sequences in a Stephen King story takes place. Objects start falling out of the sky. He catches a lampshade, the woman he thinks as Carol is killed when a cordless phone falls into her skull. It's an incredibly well-written sequence, deeply engaging because of the absurdity of it. The scene is chaotic and crazy and kind of fun because it's so strange. You might be asking yourself... Um, why? I mean, I suppose that the traffic jam is the metaphor for his life and his generation. You know, once they were cars on the open highway, their destination as open as the sky itself. Now, it's just junked up. And Sully's death scene, imagining the objects falling in the sky, is a blend of the world he's currently living in, one of materialism, with the world that he'd nearly died in during the war. Of all of the objects that crash from the sky, the baseball glove is the one that reveals that this must take place in a dream state or a death state, or simply in his head. It gives him one last moment of comfort, a reminder of when life was open to all possibilities, and he embraces Mama San, who escorts him from this life. King makes his argument for the entire collection in this story during a conversation between Sullivan and Dieffenbacher. Deef asks why they're in Vietnam in the first place, and he gives his answer on page 497. We never got out. We never got out of our green. Our generation died there. That sounds a little, a little what? A little pretentious? You bet. A little silly? You bet. A little self-regarding? Yes, sir. But that's us. That's us all over. What have we done since Nam, Sully? Those of us who went? Those of, those of us who marched and protested? Those of us who just sat home watching the Dallas Cowboys and drinking beer and farting into the sofa cushions? Color was seeping into the new lieutenant's cheeks. He had the look of a man who has found his hobby horse and is now climbing on, helpless to do anything but ride. He held up his hands and began popping fingers the way Sully had when talking about the legacies of the Vietnam experience. Well, let's see. We're the generation that invented the Super Mario Brothers, the ATV, the laser missile guidance systems, and crack cocaine, we've discovered Richard Simmons, Scott Peck, and Martha Stewart Living. Our idea of a major lifestyle change is buying a dog. The girls who burn their bras now buy their lingerie from Victoria's Secret, and the boys who effed fearlessly for peace are now fat guys who sit in front of their computer screens late at night, pulling their puddings while they look at pictures of naked 18-year-old girls on the internet. That's us, brother. We like to watch. Movies, video games, live car chase footage, fist fights of the Jerry Springer show, Mark McGuire, World Wrestling Federation, impeachment hearings. We don't care. We just like to watch. But there was a time, don't laugh, but there was a time when... It was really all in our hands. Do you know that? Sully nodded, thinking of Carol. Not the version of her sitting on the sofa with him and her wine-smelling mother. Not the one flipping the peace sign at the camera while the blood ran down the side of her face, either. The one already too late and too crazy. You could see it in her smile, read it in the sign, where screaming words forbade all discussion. Rather, he thought of Carol on the day her mother had taken all of them to Savin Rock. His friend Bobby had won some money from a three-card Monty dealer that day, and Carol had worn her blue bathing suit on the beach, and sometimes she'd give Bobby that look, the, the one that said he was killing her and death was sweet. It had been in their hands then. He was quite sure of it. But kids lose everything. Kids have slippery fingers and holes in their pockets, and they lose everything. We filled up our wallets on the stock markets and went to the gym and booked therapy sessions to get in touch with ourselves. South America's burning, Malaysia's burning, effing Vietnam is burning, but we finally got past that self-hating thing, finally got to like ourselves, so that's okay. Sully thought of Malenfant getting in touch with himself, learning to like the inner Ronnie, and suppressed a shudder. All of Diefenbacher's fingers were held up in front of his face and poked out. To Sully, he looked like Al Jolson getting ready to sing Mammy. Diefenbacher seemed to become aware of this at the same time Sully did and lowered his hands. He looked tired and distracted and unhappy. I like lots of people our age when they're they're one by one, he said. But I loathe and despise my generation, Sully. We had an opportunity to change everything. We actually did. Instead, we settled for designer jeans, two tickets to Mariah Carey at Radio City Music Hall, frequent flyer miles, James Cameron's Titanic, and the retirement portfolios. The only generation even close to us in pure, selfish self-indulgence is the so-called lost generation of the 20s. And at least most of them had the decency to stay drunk. We couldn't even do that. Man, we suck. The new lieutenant was close to tears, Sully saw. Deef? You know the price of selling out the future, Sully, John? You can never really leave the past. You can never really get over. My thesis is that you're not really in New York at all. You're in the Delta, leaning back against a tree, stoned, and rubbing a bug dope on the back of your neck. Parker's still the man because it's still 1969. Everything you think of as your later life is a big effing pop bubble. And it's better that way. Vietnam is better. That's why we stay there. Oof. That's brutal. That is a... (laughs) That's a brutal examination uh so lastly um we have our epilogue which is heavenly shades of night are falling in heavenly shades of night are falling bobby garfield returns to his hometown after almost 40 years to attend john sullivan's funeral and finds closure to his relationship with carol gerber and ted again. bobby garfield returns to harwich to attend sullivan john's funeral but that is not his only reason After the funeral, he visits a few of the old places, the house he lived in, and a favorite diner is still there, but other places are changed or gone. The last place he visits is the park where he came upon Carol Gerber with her injured arm, and sits there, reminiscing about the people he used to know. He's startled out of his reverie by a woman who approaches him, Carol Gerber, alive but scarred and burned as a result of her narrow escape from a burning tenement. She tells Bobby that Carol Gerber is dead. Her name is Denise... Shoonover, and she teaches math at Vassar. Bobby reveals that he's a carpenter when Carol voices her belief that he would be a writer. He believes that he replies that he believed he would be a career criminal and is glad that didn't come true either. She sits down and asks Bobby why he's here, and he reveals that he had come because of an item he received in the mail. He then shows her the item, his old elven Dark Darkfielder's mitt, last seen in the story Blind Willie, with his current address with the zone specified in the address even though the US Post Office stopped the zoning requirement in the 1960s in Ted's handwriting. He tells her it was sent by Sully John's probate lawyer who found it in the car where Sully died in y. We're Vietnam Nam. He then produces what was in the glove, a copyright page from Lord of the Flies, showing that although it came from the 1960 edition, it's still brand new. On it is written a message for Carol from Ted tell her she was as brave as a lion, and the equation she had written for Peter Riley on his copy, which is heart plus peace sign equals information in Hearts in Atlantis. Bobby puts the glove where he had left it in the park so long ago, thinking it will likely go back to where it came from, and sits with Carol as his portable radio begins playing Twilight Time by the Platters. The title of the story is from the first line of this song. Analysis Analysis 1999 come on, you bastard, come home. Heavenly shades of night are falling. The entry comes right on the heels of the previous one and circles us back to the beginning. Reunited in a sense, are three main characters of John Sullivan, Carol Gerber, and Bobby Garfield. We don't spend a lot of time with them, nor do we have to. It's an epilogue for a series of vignettes that have been linked together by Carol Gerber. Carol, who we meet as a child in Loman in yellow coats who we saw began to grow into the fugitive whose ideals were corrupted and warped in hearts in Atlantis, whose memory haunted blind Willie, whose boyfriend struggled to find his place in why we're Vietnam, and here we see Carol return. It's Carol, more than Bobby or anyone else, that embodies King's argument on his generation. They reunite over the baseball glove that had been sent to Bobby. Ted has a message for each of them in the hopes to inspire the children that hopefully still exist within them. And with the baseball glove embodying potential and uncorrupted ideals, Bobby leaves it to be found in the hopes that where his generation failed, the next may succeed. Easter eggs. Dim. Carol says that she's been taught the trick of becoming dim, a reference to Randall Flagg, who had been the leader of a militant group that was responsible for the bomb that had gone off? And being dim is that magic ability that we've seen time and time again in Stephen King works. So, guys, that's um, that is Low Men in Yellow. I'm sorry, that is uh, Hearts in Atlantis, the collection. Which, like I said, I um, when it comes to generation uh, sociology, I can't really speak about. The ins and outs and the nuances of being a, a baby boomer. Like my, my personal generation is, I don't know. I, I think that if you were to to look at it, where where I I fall on the the, the charts, different sociologists and and different uh, a- analysts have. Will peg me either as one of the, the last years of Gen X or one of the first years of the Millennials or this weird in between group that doesn't really seem to exist. Though I tend to side more with uh, the Gen Xers. Um, but with the Baby Boomers, I uh, you know what I know is just what I know from being raised by two Baby Boomers and what I've seen on television. You know, I mean, and and the things that are explored in this novel are not. Not the aspects that you get from school, right? Um, the, these personal events. Uh, so if anyone you know, older than me that has more experience and more insight wants to share their thoughts on what King is saying about his generation, feel free to write in at yahoo.com. And if you have any time, feel free to uh, head on over to iTunes and write a review and uh, subscribe while you're at it because it will help support the Stephen Kingcast. And so guys, I guess my final thoughts is this is a wonderful collection of very well-written stories and it's clear that it's, it's very, very personal for Stephen King and I just like seeing how his thesis evolves uh, from story to story. Uh, my only issue is the Blind Willie segment. I, I just don't like it. Like I said, it just it feels out of place to me. Um, and if you were to take it out, I, I think that it would make the, the collection that much stronger. Okay, guys, so here's what's going to happen next. I have a bonus episode for uh, the Dark Tower Connections, and um, make sure you stick around for the next episode where I will review the, uh, the Hearts in Atlantis adaptation starring Anthony Hopkins. So, everyone, I will see you here uh, next week, and until then, may you have... Long Days I and Pleasant Nights. And I'll see you here again where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King Kingcast. Deep in the dark, your kiss will thrill me like days of old. Lighting the spark of love that fills me with dreams untold. Each day I pray for evening just to be with you. Together, at last, at twilight time, Together At last at twilight